Welcome to the Practical Neurology Editor's Podcast for the June 2021 issue. So my name is Phil Smith. I'm joined by my co-editor, Garrett Fuller, and we're going to be discussing some highlights from the issue and particularly their practical impact. So we've got quite a full issue. And if there is a theme this time, I think, Garrett, it's of tests. Uh, and um, so of, of the papers in the in the issue this time, what, which one drew your attention most, do you think? As always, we've got an interesting selection of papers. I think the one that perhaps is going to be most novel for lots of people in terms of the tests on offer uh, is the use of ultrasound scanning in the diagnosis of peripheral neuropathies, which comes from uh, the University of Utrecht and Johannes Telemann's team. And I think this is really interesting because we're obviously very familiar with imaging the CNS, and indeed the CNS is very photogenic, if that's the right term. It's nice and symmetrical. You can pick up um, the asymmetries. It, 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 the images are a, a source of beauty. Uh, the peripheral nervous system, we pretty much don't image, or rather we might have a mental image when we're doing an examination or doing neurophysiological tests. But physically imaging is really quite challenging because it's not organized in a sensible series of planes. The nerves wiggle all over the place. Uh, they go inside bones, outside bones, next to blood vessels. So it's really quite hard to think about how to image it. And so we tend not to even think about that process. And I think what's interesting about the ultrasound paper is that they've, the team have realized and have uh, explored how to use ultrasound to image a complicated structure like the peripheral nerve system to see if it can add value to the diagnostic techniques that we've got at the moment. Because obviously peripheral nerves are typically looked up with neurophysiology. That's the way that we try and make sense of it, um, which obviously has the benefit of function, but it does mean we've ignored structure altogether. And, and what they tell you about is the, the way to use ultrasound, how you can look at the size and the cross-sectional area of nerves, which seems to be quite a robust set of measures with really rather less variability between populations than you might expect. Very tall and very elderly people have slightly smaller nerves, but beyond that, uh, there seems to be a fairly consistent normal range. And if you look at the nerves, you can get additional value. So you can find nerves are uh, expanded or expanded in a consistent or a patchy way. Um, nerves are compressed in a specific spot when they're enlarged. So you can use it to help not just diagnose mononeuropathies that we're probably all familiar with, the idea of using for carpal tunnel or ulnar neuropathies, but actually for looking at CIDP, uh, inflammatory neuropathies, trying to disentangle between some of the uh, inherited neuropathies. So I think it, it's it's probably the beginning of something for us to be thinking about. I mean, most of us haven't got a feeling for how to use it or um, how it's going to be used. They do address that in an attempt to try and draw together the data that's available. But I think it's really interesting because it's a different way to look at an old problem. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think they they emphasize very much it's a complementary test. So it's one that will be used alongside nerve conduction for the most part, maybe uh, won't be the sole test that's used in, in most cases. But uh, so it struck me really, uh, who should be doing this? I mean, is this a new skill for trainee neurologists? Is it something that neurophysiologists or technicians will be doing or physiologists or or, it, or do they go to the radiology department to have, the, have this test done? Uh, I mean, is, will we be training more as sonographers in the future, do you think? 
Well, I, I mean, I think it's a very interesting and difficult question. I mean, the recommendations by from the authors is that given that it's so complementary, as you say, to neurophysiology, the key issue there really is it, it's probably best if it's done by the person who actually also does neurophysiology. So if you're a neurophysiologist can do sonography, that gets you the, the best um, bang for your buck, as it were. Yeah. Um, however, it, it does seem to be a, a different set of skills and presumably it's something that takes a degree of training and expertise. And um, you know, are we going to be linking up with our neurophysiology colleagues? Are we going to get technicians to do it? Is it going to be neurologists who learn to do it? And I think, uh, I think that's probably going to evolve uh, alongside the way in which we choose to use it. Yeah. So another that was a, you know a, a brand sort of a brand new way of approaching it, but something that is uh, really adapting existing methods much more is this great paper from uh, Coventry from Holger Algrogan, who uh, has talked about home video EEG telemetry. So this is something I think has been perhaps fueled by the pandemic in a way, because uh, it's no longer quite so straightforward to bring people into hospital for their video EEG monitoring. And in any case, do we always get the best from them if we uh, do the monitoring in an unfamiliar environment in the hospital? When actually, when it's applied just for diagnosis, just for is it dissociative non-epileptic seizures or is it epilepsy, then all you need really is to record people in their own home having their uh, usual habitual seizures uh, and with a time-locked EEG. And this has become very possible and uh, relatively cheap now. I say cheap because, of course, the lack of admission to hospital uh, is also a big saving for the NHS and uh, other units around the world. So um, Holger's been doing this in Coventry for a while and has generated quite an experience on it. And uh, essentially patients come in and have the leads put on and go home with uh, what looks like an iPad. Uh, it's infrared camera as well, records at night. And you just put this on the stand and it watches you all of the time, whatever you're doing, you take it everywhere except the toilet, it seems. Uh, and uh, you don't even have to do anything except plug it in. It's totally free of any involvement by the user that way. They just have to make sure the camera is pointed at them. And um, you know, I, I think this is clearly the way forward. It, it, it does seem to be uh, one of those things that's very obvious and we wonder why we haven't been doing a lot more of it up and down the country already. And I think I think you're absolutely right. So there's sort of the conceptual barrier, but also the technological barrier, because clearly um, the fact that we can run these uh, really very high-powered machines at a distance, um, you know, that that's that's one of the big dramatic changes that it can all be put in a single box. And, and I think, as you say, that the fact that you can just say, well, you know, we're going to do it on Wednesday week or whenever, and that's when it happens, as opposed to the normal difficulties with booking and is available rather rather than when the bed and all the staffing and everything is available and this is easy to do at a weekend whereas you know the hospital is always a bit of troublesome getting people in for routine admissions then so 
So yeah, clearly it's not for pre-surgery. It's not, clearly not for stopping medications and making people have seizures. That's uh, to you know that requires close supervision. But this, I think, is a real winner and uh, a really practical paper, which is is going to help people. I think. And it's interesting to reflect a little on the way in which EEG has evolved. I mean, obviously, the EEG got a bit of a bad reputation because it was the only way we could look at the brain for a long time. So it was massively overinterpreted and. You know, now I think we've recognized that actually for recording discrete events, it is a sensational mechanism to try and help understand what's happening. But it means that you have to have a methodology to be able to capture those events. And yeah. this is obviously going a long way along the, the, that line. And I think, you know, one's going to look back and uh, EEG is going to be once again seen as a powerful way of looking at these kind of events because yeah. you're doing it in the correct setting. Yeah, so I mean, the, the one that we think we know a lot about, I think, is is MRI, and uh, uh, I mean, you're going to tell us about this, Gary. But but I just 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 to say, this is by the team from from Cardiff actually, who've uh, you know tried to help neurologists understand something uh, more about what they think they know a lot about already. So, uh, Gary, what do you make of this paper? So M MRI is one of those topics where um, when you see a nice lecture or a very good presentation about MRI or a new presentation, it's one of those things where you retain it and you say, yes, it's completely clear, I've got it. And then the moment you go home and you try and remember whether the, the, the electrons are going this way and the protons are lined that way and which is relaxing, and it, and it all becomes much, much harder to try and work out what's happened. So mo I think most of us have a pretty clear practical uh, insight as to how MRI works and what kind of sequences are useful in what kind of context, but it's so difficult to necessarily retain exactly the physics behind it. And this is a really nice straightforward primer to sort of bring you up to speed. And if, if you're, for example, involved primarily in inflammatory disease, uh, seeing things that look more at blood flow, it, it, it's quite a useful way just to remind you of all the things that you actually almost certainly already know. Yeah, and I think they've done it very nicely. Yeah, and, and actually enables you to talk with confidence at radiology meetings and things. And, and uh, you know, I think they mentioned that it helps you frame, oh, it's rubbish in, rubbish out sort of thing. So the better your question, the better you, information you can give to the radiologist, then the, more, the, the better that they're going to be able to interpret the scan. So it will help us frame our clinical questions uh, rather better, I think. Yes, and, and, and it's, it's not exactly a complete language course, but it's certainly giving you the ling linguistic basics to have a sensible conversation with your radiologists and, and make sure you're contributing, as you say. Yeah, so, and a couple of tips in there. If you, want a whole, if you want the whole spinal cord, say whole cord and not whole spine, because they, they mentioned that actually it wastes the time doing the lumbar spine otherwise. And... Uh, uh, I think the other thing I, I learned was, uh, again, just the importance of radiology meetings. I, I think that uh, clearly it's important that we look at these tests and maybe in time we'll be looking at nerve ultrasound tests as well around a sort of MDT forum. But I think there's nothing better than talking about tests uh, with the clinical knowledge from the clinicians there, plus the experts uh, able to comment on it. I mean, it's a really rich experience, I think. So opening the black box, there's no doubt that it all, all helps. Yeah, okay. So um, another one relating to imaging is this uh, 
one about delayed diagnosis of spinal cord injuries in Huntington's disease. It's from Hamish Morrison from uh, Bristol, along with Anne Rosser from Cardiff. And uh, I mean, this is really about where you need to know the diagnosis in order to request the right test. I mean, once the test was done, it was very obvious what was going on. And it really is quite a tragic case because uh, uh, it's actually two cases um, of patients with Huntington's who uh, developed spinal cord injuries, but it was it was overlooked because uh, at the time they were not seen by people with experience in the natural history of Huntington's disease, and the patients themselves could not express themselves clearly enough to to make it clear what their normal condition was like, and also perhaps didn't have insight into the severity of their own condition either, and it and it. So, for example, the first case who had a fall uh, and became less mobile and uh, developed urinary incontinence, even priapism, actually, but because they seemed to be quieter and having fewer abnormal movements, and because the urinary problem was put down as a UTI through people not really knowing the natural history of Huntington's disease, it was tragically overlooked. And it wasn't until the specialist, the specialist nurse, uh, in Huntingdon's reviewed the patient and recognised something was wrong, that uh, it was recognised, but sadly with not a good outcome, and uh, that patient died. And the, the other patient also, even though it was recognised late, uh, remained wheelchair-dependent with a long-term catheter needing help and so forth. So this is not a happy paper to read, but it contains very important messages, I think, about uh, uh, recognising sudden changes in uh, people with, even with rare conditions where uh, people may not understand the natural history of it well. Um, yeah. and, uh, and I think another, another common feature with these two cases, which as you say are very tragic, are that uh, the other experts in the condition, the, the family and uh, carers or long-standing carers of both patients weren't involved uh, for a variety of different reasons being in a respite or this kind of thing. So the people didn't recognize the change for what it was. And um, as you say, tragically, the fewer movements was even in one of the cases was thought to be an improvement in the Huntington's, whereas patently it was a devastating deterioration. Yeah, so I mean, the clear practical message I think we picked from this is, you know, we need to know what is someone normally like? And that isn't always obvious when we see them for the first time in hospital or in an intensive care unit, it's, it's tempting to think they've always been like that. And uh, of course, we need to know what they normally like, what can they normally do, because the patients may not be able to tell you, they may not have the, the insight or the cognitive function to do that. So we then move on to another paper, which is based on tests or rational diagnosis. And uh, that's uh, skeletal muscle channelopathies, uh, a guide to uh, diagnosis and management. Phil, um, I think you're going to take us through this. Yeah, so, so this is from uh, Emma Matthews' group in St George's in London and also from Queen Square. So th this, this is a, a group of conditions which, again, the, the issue is about thinking about it and therefore uh, enabling one to make the diagnosis. And it might be the diagnosis not just in the individual but in the whole family. So we need to know about these because the symptoms can be so vague and can be difficult to describe. And as they say in their abstract, it, it, it can 
the, the group of conditions with significant mor morbidity, limit vocational opportunities, socially embarrassing, sometimes associated with sudden cardiac death. Clearly, there's a, there's a lot that we need to know about these conditions. But essentially, it's a problem with the dysfunction of the sarcolemmal ion channels, which, which control muscle membrane excitability. And either is a problem with the muscles contracting, in which case you have weakness, or there's a problem with them relaxing, in which case you have myotonia. So the group of disorders with weakness are those with hypo and hyperkalemic periodic paralysis, which we probably see occasionally. But uh, just to say that re reading through these, it's clear that um, the weakness is not always so easily recognized. I mean, it's not stereotyped as it might have been in a movement disorder or in a episodic ataxia. The episodes are not always dramatic so that it's complete tetraparesis. It varies throughout the time of day. It might be worse in the morning than the evening, afternoon and evening. And so children with this might appear to not function well in the morning, but be better by the time it's television time. And so it can look like school avoidance. And also they might find that following uh, exercise, they're at their worst. So that they sit down after the playtime and can't move later. So that all of these things tell, tell us that these need to be recognized from what might not be a very stereotyped picture. And then there's the non-dystrophic myotonias. This is uh, such as myotonia congenitus and, and so forth, which are perhaps easier to recognize because they're going to have physical signs even between obvious attacks, which is not always the case with the periodic paralyses. Um, the, the treatment of the periodic paralyses is about uh, restoring the potassium balance, either with potassium wasting or potassium sparing agents, depending on the type. And also acetazolamide is helpful for all of these conditions, all of the channelopathies. But with the uh, the caveat that I wasn't fully aware of, actually, that long-term acetazolamide requires an annual renal ultrasound scan to monitor for renal calculi. So that's something that's changed my practice slightly. That mexilatine is the treatment of choice for the myotonias, but that lamotrigine also might be useful. And this is helpful to know because in pregnancy, we don't know the, we know quite a lot about lamotrigine, but less so about mexilatine and uh, acetazolamide. Uh, and there's the caveat about the anesthesia, which we talked about last time, actually, that uh, uh, if you have one of these conditions, let your anesthetist know and they'll avoid certain drugs. So I mean, I read this with great interest. It's not, it's not that I see a lot of these conditions, but I think that uh, it's clearly one where the neurologist listening to the history is particularly important, that the physical signs often are disappointing, that the tests are, uh, well, they need to be highly targeted because the tests are aimed uh, at, well, electrolytes and CK and so forth, but genetics as well is the, is the way to make this diagnosis. So, Phil, I think this falls into the category of those conditions that um, I might see quite a lot, but I diagnose quite infrequently. And I, hopefully this is going to make it a bit easier to try and bridge that gap, because I think they can be very challenging to diagnose. And once the penny drops, at least this provides a nice framework to try and lead you in the right direction to help this group of patients for uh, conditions for which there are actually quite a number of different treatment options, as you say. Yeah. Um, so is it mostly about making the diagnosis most definitely and uh, 
But, but actually, it does lead us quite nicely to another condition where the, uh, the, the genetics, you know, can be increasingly the way that this, uh, that diagnoses are made. So we have a case of cerebrotendinous xanthomatosis, I think, and uh, it, was, it was from Iran, and they diagnosed it in the old-fashioned way of the clinical method and the reflex hammer and this sort of thing, and only later did they send the genetics. But um, when we sent it for, for review, our reviewer felt that uh, actually this isn't how it's diagnosed anymore, that it's diagnosed by the genetics. And so we, we asked that reviewer, um, Marios Hadjivasalu, to uh, write an editorial. So what do you think about his editorial? Well, I, I mean, I think it's a very interesting recognition and that actually a lot of the time, you know, the, the way in which these clinical diagnoses were made on the basis of sort of relatively subtle clinical signs, though, to be fair, in the case illustrated, the signs are far from subtle, but you, you can see that the, the art of uh, differentiating which gene is the cause is rather less important if you're going to do a panel and test all, test all the genes. And, and clearly, if, if you have that opportunity to do a panel and find all these things, well, why on earth wouldn't you? But I think, in a way, giving up the idea that you should look for these things probably is uh, something that would lead to bad medicine in, in the longer term. And in fact, Marius does uh, quite nicely argue for the benefits of sort of a clinical method attached to it to make sure that you adjust your a gene panel to include all the things that you would perhaps catch up, catch up with. And, and he mentions uh, um, examples predominantly from their practice, which is based on ataxia, to, to try and make sense of those things. So I think it's, it's, it's an interesting reflection uh, of a change in the way in which we're all practicing. Yeah, so it's, it's targeting your gene panel then. Uh, you know, certainly in conditions like epilepsy, you know, we're, we're doing lots of gene panels, particularly with those with severe learning disability, but uh, it isn't quite so targeted, I think, as, as yet, as may be the case in some neuromuscular disorders. So then I, I was going to, we're, we're going to come on to this paper, which we commissioned from Umanath on physician-assisted suicide and physician-assisted euthanasia. So complete change of topic, really. But um, uh, I mean, Garrett, you're going to talk about this, I think, but j just to say that the authors um, were, well, I mean, Uma put together the authorship on the basis that they all had different views, different range of views on the uh, best outcome for, for this. And uh, so I, I think we tried our best to commission something that was going to be as balanced as possible and something which was going to uh, help neurologists come to their own decisions. And uh, uh, it's an incredibly difficult area. But um, Garen, you have a look at the paper. I mean, obviously, this is topic, topical and is once again in the press. Um, with people discussing the pros and cons of, of um, physician-assisted suicide and physician-assisted euthanasia. And in a way, what, what I think is helpful in this paper and what is the objective of this paper is rather than to present sort of the ethical arguments or um, sort of any political considerations, what they've tried to do is to look at those areas within the, the world and that they reckon altogether they're about 2% of the world population is now covered by countries that have one or other set of regulations which allow 
one or other of these different mechanisms to be used. And they've tried to explore what's happened in those areas. Has there been a change in the way in which it's used? How often is it used? Has it been uh, something which has hindered or enhanced the development of palliative care services to try and provide better care for patients who are dying? And uh, I think the, the crucial thing is, I don't think they're wanting anyone to come to a conclusion. I think what they want to do is to try and show what has happened and to try and learn from, I mean, we, we talk about experiments of, of nature. This is an experiment of, of legislature that we, we have uh, other cultures in other ways in Holland and Canada and Oregon. Uh, and in fact, now increasingly in Australia where these things are being done and um, what happens, what does it mean? Um, how uh, does it make the, people change their behavior and indeed uh, what risks does it pose to the vulnerable. So we've got quite a range of different things that um, uh, come out of this paper and, and I think it's there mainly as a, a source for discussion rather than trying to be the final um, answer uh, to these uh, questions. So we, we hope people read it with that in mind. We know people will tend to have very strong, uh, some people have some very strong views about this, and uh, hopefully this has been a useful contribution to that discussion. Yeah. Yes, I, and, and clearly, yeah, no, no answers, as you say. In fact, the, the paper is presented as a series of questions, frequently asked questions, which uh, is quite a clever way to approach it, I think. And uh, but it will allow us all, I think, to be able to uh, frame our own arguments and questions uh, on, on the basis of uh, some uh, well-researched, uh, well, well thought through arguments. Yeah. Though, though to be fair, one of the points they make is that um, there are quite a number of issues about the quality of the data. Um, and it, I suppose if, in many respects, if there was one conclusion that I drew from this is that if you're going to make these kind of changes it probably will be useful to actually try and measure what you're doing um, so that you can try and understand what you've done. Yeah so thank you I mean if, if we can if we could end on a slightly lighter note then um, the, the last one I just wanted to uh, mention is this one called the phenomenon of Lamite from uh, Newcastle and um, I mean, it, it's it's a it's a nice one. It's almost a sort of Christmas edition one, really. But uh, but it's such a long time to Christmas that we put it into the June edition. And uh, what what uh, essentially uh, made them splutter over their copy was the mention of Lamite's sign. Um, whereas, of course, um, what we think of as the Lamite's uh, phenomenon is is the tingling you get on on neck flexion, a, a phenomenon certainly not a sign. And they go on to describe about Lamite and all of the various eponymous things that he described at a time when it was uh, uh, very, it was great to have lots of things named after you. And um, uh, so several Lamite phenomena, in, including internuclear ophthalmoplegia, it seems. And uh, now we had great fun with this, getting the spelling right and this sort of thing, because uh, it's called from, from Pedant's Corner and uh, uh, we, we wanted to make sure the spelling of the French was exactly correct, so we got our associate editor, Colin Mumford, to help with that. And slightly surprisingly, things like L'Académie Française uh, has a small F for Française, and uh, 
Uh, so we, we got the style exactly as, as it should be. And I think if you can find an error in the piece, then we'd like to hear more about it. So uh, an enjoyable one, um, uh, a, a, nice, a nice read for Midsummer. Yeah, and we, we wondered about what we should call this particular edition of Practical Neurology, and we did wonder whether we should end up calling it Tests and Pedantry um, in acknowledgement for this uh, um, little gem. So I, I think um, there's lots to read and some very interesting cases, uh, which hopefully you're going to find educational as well. Great. Thank you very much indeed. And see you next time. See you next time. Cheerio.